episode 86 of the movie brats podcast i am carter and joining me as always is jonathan but jonathan this isn't a normal episode uh in about a week and a half from the recording of this the movie brats podcast will be celebrating their five year anniversary how about that hard to believe i've been teaching that long too so we're five years older, five more years of films. <laughs> five more years of, I think, would have become modern classics. And today's episode will be devoted to coming up with our five favorites or top five. How do you want to frame this, Jonathan? I am going to just do them in the order they originally came out and not rank them because it's kind of an arbitrary, just the last five years of us doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm just going to say here are uh the five i like the most in just the order they came out in originally i think that's a good way of doing it um but you can do it how you would want to so i think two of mine premiered at the 2019 Cannes film festival so where where do you want to start should i well (laughs) we're doing it through chronological order well uh, I can I can go with mine first if you want to. Or... Okay, let's start off with your your first one in chronological okay. order. Okay, I'm gonna cheat because I have two films to talk about together, <laughs> but there really are companion pieces. It's not like oh, I'm gonna mention all three of the James Bond movies or Mission Impossible movies that have come out in the last five years. Uh-huh. I'm gonna be talking about Joanna Hogg souvenir films, uh, the Souvenir and the Souvenir Part Two. So the first film uh, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, January 27th, 2019. It opened theatrically in the U.S. later that year on May 17th. And then part two first screened at the Cannes Film Festival in the director's fortnight section, uh, July 8th, 2021. Usually Cannes is in May, but this was because of COVID pushed back a little bit the first Cannes uh, since the pandemic and then it was released theatrically in the U.S. later that year in October on October 29th so I had never seen any of Joanna Hogg's films when I saw the souvenir the first one and for the first hour of the movie that's just about two hours long I was thought this is really well made it's well acted it's quiet and subtle and I was like why does this movie have like a 90 something on Metacritic? Like it's good. But, and then in the second half of it, it just kind of emotionally like punched me in the guts. And I just kind of staggered out of the movie theater, uh, not because something giant or big or suddenly changes its tone or it's, uh, you know, what's happening, but there's just an emotional buildup that happens. That's hap- that happens gradually uh, in its two hour running time and i was just really floored by the movie and it was one of my favorite films of 2019 um and then i saw the sequel uh at the new york film festival and i thought it was actually even a little bit better than the first film and it was my favorite movie of 2021 uh i thought that it was not as heavy or um when i say dramatic i don't mean that the drama isn't rich 
or engaging, but it's not quite as uh, dramatic and some of the plot. Well, you wouldn't beats. call it like melodrama, but no. um, approaching that maybe in the first right. movie. And this, and you've uh, just to be clear, you've seen, I've seen the, the first, first one, one, not the but second. You haven't yeah. seen part two, and um, you it's one where you could certainly watch the first film on its own and it works, but you really need to have seen the sec the first film to watch the second one. Um, the and, second one, she sort of makes a movie about the first one, right? Yes, uh, I would say that both of them, but especially part two, are, are among the best films I've seen, especially of this century, about films, uh-huh. about filmmaking. And the second film uh, has more humor in it. It's not. It's it's a little bit lighter, um, but I just found it completely engrossing. And she just Hog has just such a graceful touch where every shot, every decision is just so perfectly realized. But what's so interesting is that she makes her movies kind of like another famous Brit, Mike Lee, Mm -hmm. without a full script. She has just a very basic short outline for the film. And they kind of, in some ways, improvise the movie and they come up with the dialogue. And it's so interesting because her movies just feel almost like diamond sharp precise and just so you know judged and they're just so perfectly done but uh there's there's this kind of uh i guess in her process this improvisation that she gets that it's just kind of remarkable because sometimes movies that are very improvised feel kind of and sometimes it's charming but they feel kind of put together there's this kind of fly the by the seat of your pants feel to it and her movies feel so judged you mm-hmm. know uh, pr- precisely done so yeah I, I really like the first one a lot and the second part I liked even more and I would say together I'm cheating a little bit but they are absolutely two of my favorite films of the last five years so you got to see part two Carter yeah I, I will that's one it's one of those ones you say oh I'm gonna get around to seeing it and you know you end up watching a hundred movies before you end up seeing that one when you keep thinking to yourself, oh, that needs to be the next one I watch. Um, I'm kind of just waiting for like perfect set and setting for it, which I'm sure will come eventually. I might I probably will need to watch the first one again before I watch part two, to be honest, because the only time I saw it was uh, and it's I think I might have seen it in 2019, maybe early winter 2019, something like that. Um, so it's been quite a long time. And I'm sure that the, this movie was helped by. Tilda Swinton, maybe your favorite human being existing, uh, was in the yes. first one. Is she in the second one too? Yes, and it. Uh, we mentioned this when we reviewed the first one. Her real life daughter plays her daughter in the film, mm-hmm. and the second one is so meta on so many levels because Tilda Swinton and Joanna Hogg uh, knew each other since they were very young, and part two is about the character who is basically Joanna Hogg uh, making a student film and is there Joanna a Tilda Hogg's, Swinton? <laughs> jo- Joanna Hogg student film in real life starred Tilda Swinton. Uh-huh. And so it's like her daughter playing a version of her and her mother is playing it. And, she, and it's just like, it's like this meta rabbit hole. And I don't want to give it away, but um, I recommend after, if people have never seen the first film, watch the first film. Watch a few interviews with Joanna Hogg about just the first film mm-hmm. and then watch the second one because there is a very meta moment that ends part two that I just adored. And it's just like 
breathtaking in its perfectness. Uh, so, uh, and I don't want to give it away, but you want to know what she sounds like. Okay. <laughs> um, um, and I'll well, just say real quick that the there is kind of a third part of the series in a way, like a meta meta film, The Eternal Daughter, where Tilda Swinton uh, plays two women, a mother and a daughter, who go to this creepy old mansion for her to write her new screenplay and basically kind of without it ever saying it she kind of writes what you assume is maybe the souvenir film so it's like very very his films get very meta there's like the the ex, the you know, it's like the you know jewish universe the i know yeah or the marvel cinematic you know, the hog verse but uh-huh. uh so yeah uh, cinematic universe uh, yeah don't uh yeah watch the souvenir and the souvenir part two and then watch eternal daughter yeah if you really want to be a joanna hoghead a completist um well i'll go ahead and do two because my first two actually premiered on the same day Uh, okay so i think that would be in keeping with chronological order i'm not quite sure which one premiered first as to what the schedule of that day was i guess if i really wanted to i could maybe look it up what the the schedule for the con film festival. So alphabetically then may 21st 2019 okay so alphabetically i mean it's one and the other two one is an o and the other is a p uh so the first one is once upon a time in hollywood directed by quentin written and directed by quentin tarantino uh premiered may 21st 2019 at the con film festival and was released wide july 26 2019 um this is one of those movies i can very much remember uh, how I felt seeing it in a movie theater for the first time. Um, and the whole sort of buildup of this was Quentin Tarantino had been doing these sort of alternate history movies, starting with uh, Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, or kind of a part of that. But this was very much in the Inglorious Bastards sort of alternate history universe and dealt with, you know, a, a real person um, who people were very familiar with uh her tragic murder and the sort of events surrounding that with charles manson so i was very interested to see how he was going to handle it and if he was actually going to show you know that the actual murders happened like they really did which i would have been really upset if that's that's how it would happen so um the last i was gonna 20, say i don't 30 minutes just, of this yeah i was just gonna say when i heard i love tarantino but when i heard that he was going to do something of a manson film i just really went oh that just sounds awful like i love you quentin but but i don't really want to see this yeah no yeah and so the first you know two hours i'm just like i'm you know loving the sort of mood of this movie it's very like contemplative and uh sort of happens at its own pace just about these people living in hollywood for uh, basically a day the first two hours is basically like a day and a half in the lives of these people and you know their their triumphs and their failures on a very small level um and then the movie takes a bit of a time jump and the final 40 minutes i remember seeing it for the first time was just some of the most thrilling stuff i've ever seen in a movie theater and then when it crescendos to the final climax of the movie where we get the sort of alternate version of the the manson family murders and and see them get their comeuppance i hope it's not a spoiler for anyone to to know that sharon tate does not get murdered in this movie um but the last like little bit and the climactic scene people in the audience were just freaking out and like screaming and stuff like that and it's one of the best theater experiences i think i've ever had 
Uh, I saw it another couple times in the theaters after that because I like brought people to see it who who hadn't seen it yet. It's like you got to see this movie. Um, so for me, it's it's hard to even think that this movie only came out four years ago, considering I've rewatched it multiple times, and I feel like it's had a big impact on um, you know American sort of cinematic culture. Some of the memes it's um, produced and the dialogue around Tarantino's foot fetish and all sorts of different stuff. This is the movie that got Brad Pitt, uh, his Oscar. And um, I think is one of Leo's best performances and uh, allow one of the first times, I guess the Revenant, he sort of plays an older person, but I, th- I think this was him coming to terms a bit with himself as an aging actor in a way that maybe isn't reflected in his personal life still at this point, but at least in his career, he's starting to do that. Um so yeah, this very much one of my favorite movies of the last five years. I wouldn't say maybe it's the best or like, you know, the most accomplished or the most representative of, you know, how the boundaries of cinema are being pushed in the last five years. But um, this has sort of become a comfort watch for me. And I think it's a very good hangout movie and is one of the more enjoyable movie experiences I've had uh, since we started doing this podcast. Uh, any thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jonathan? Oh, it's one of my favorite Tarantino films, and uh, I think it's one of his most mature films. Uh, you know, even though it is a film where you have people being lit on fire from <laughs> flamethrowers and smashing women's faces into various uh, uh, edges, household and objects. Yeah, um, but it's interesting. I'll connect it to this. There's uh, been a number of major filmmakers that their last X number of movies in a row period pieces have all been period pieces paul thomas anderson quentin tarantino steven spielberg martin scorsese james gray or some of them it's like the spielberg uh or you know it's like they're set in the future like mm-hmm. a sci-fi movie but like scorsese's, scorsese's only film this century narrative film that's not a period piece is the departed yeah. the one he won best picture best director for spielberg has uh made you know virtually no you know, Saving Private Ryan, Ryan was his last film of, you know, the 20th century. And then mm. pretty almost all of his films this century, almost all of them are period or either pieces. set in the future yeah. or the past. PTA's films, all of them uh, from There Will Be Blood on to now are period pieces. Uh, mm. You know, James Gray, we have, you know, it's just interesting. And I think that uh, Once Upon a mm. Time in Hollywood is one of the most loving recreations of a past. And oh, yeah. also you know connecting it to the souvenir it's one of the best films about films and yeah. filmmaking in the last uh, few years very different movies yeah. um <laughs> but uh um yeah when did this think... movie gives tarantino a bit of space to sort of pontificate about there's the what's become a famous speech of al pacino telling dicaprio's character you know why he's on the downslope and how getting beat up by all these tv actors they're not seeing you know the actor they're seeing the character he played and that sort of stuff uh, it's just a very smart movie about the industry and it uh, seems like kind of a culmination movie for for Tarantino like you know he doesn't feel like he needs to prove anything or and it just you know it makes a sort of meditative um pretty long movie it's about 2 hours and 40 minutes but it deserves that sort of runtime because you know it's not like this is about the biggest stuff like at Lawrence of Arabia or something but it is an epic in its own sort of way and well, deserves the once upon a time title that it was given, which I think I don't think Tarantino sort of gave that out willy nilly. I think that's very considered for him. And he has the the chapter heading in Inglorious Bastards, 
once upon a time in Nazi occupied France. But um, I think that was pretty intentional sort of. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I think if you put a gun to his head, he would say his favorite film of all time is the good, the bad and the ugly. And then the guy's next film is once upon a time in the West. uh Um, And I think that uh, it's interesting. You're talking about the first two hours and the last like 40 minutes. It's like the first two hours of the movie is lovingly created and it's, but it's really kind of like not very plot heavy. It's like kind of a hangout movie. He's talked about it being kind of a, you know, it's getting to know the characters living in that world. And then some shit goes down (laughs) and gloriously. So Um, yeah, I I mean, I would say that Pulp Fiction is still my favorite of his number two would be the Kill Bill films as one. And this would be three. That's my top three. Tarantino. I would have liked oh. I, I, this. This was such a memorable theater experience. I would have liked to have seen Pulp Fiction in its original context and hear people react to it and stuff like that. But you were for one me, year that's, old when it came out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, that's such a huge part of this movie for me. It's just the first time I saw it and, you know, a full theater and no one knows what's going to happen. The, the direction it took was like so not shocking, but it just it, I, I guess it felt shocking at the time. Um, and I wonder if a little bit of, I mean, do you agree with me? We've both seen all of Tarantino's films that The Hateful Eight is his weakest film. Yes, which and, was the one that came out right before it. Yeah. yeah. And I really like a lot of Django Unchained, but even that film I feel like is kind of in the bottom half of the ranking of the films for him and that it's one that goes, that one is too long. Uh-huh. Both Django Unchained and Hateful Eight are too long. Uh, but Hollywood, you know, I could have stayed another hour yeah and, you know i could have just lived in it <laughs> but yeah I, I i very much like that movie so what's the other movie that premiered the same day the same day uh by another writer director uh bong jun ho's parasite best picture winner from 2019 also premiered may 21st uh 2019 ended up winning the palm door right um, yes and it beat uh tarantino for best picture best director best screenplay yeah that was the year everyone was like scorsese v tarantino and bong Juno comes around the corner and the, the oscars for that was like right before the world totally shut down um so it was i think people got to sit on that achievement for a while because there wasn't much else to think about than just oh parasite just won best picture well, I remember um, tarantino talking in interviews about how that group of films like 1970 19- 17 joker uh that they were like the bird that like flew out of the window before it was slammed shut of the pandemic like there were movies like i'm going to mention two of them in a few few minutes that were once it came out right before the pandemic and basically didn't get very few people saw them in the theater uh so yeah there you know there were these lucky few 2019 films that kind of swept in and like they got all a huge impact i feel like like 2019 yeah. was a big year for movies. Um, yeah, a lot of really big time filmmakers had movies that came out this year. And but um, Parasite, a, yeah, trumped trump them all. Um, this was a movie I saw as a double feature with The Lighthouse. I saw The Lighthouse first, and I saw this second. So, needless to say, not the cheeriest day of movie going. Uh, but very excited by by the movies and the possibilities of of cinema and stuff like that. After I saw both of these pretty unsettling, uh, not super violent, but bursts of violence in a really effective way. Both of these movies. Um, we talked in a previous episode about Talk to Me and how about it sort of feeling contemporary and of a world that you can recognize. I think Parasite has been one of the most effective 
uh, contemporary. We, I mean, we were just talking about movies by great uh, directors being set in the past. This is very much a movie of the present and about uh, the sort of, you know, economic disparity crisis that exists not only in the United States, but worldwide and um, seems to be especially felt in South Korea. Uh, the movie's basically just you have this family that has nothing and a family who has everything and the family who has nothing sort of acts as a parasite on the other one and slowly takes over their sort of world until we get a violent outburst at the end. Um, this is a movie when you're watching it the first time, you have really no idea where it's going to go. Um, and I think for it being a foreign movie in another language is pretty accessible to Americans. I've shown this um, to a decent amount of people who, Normies, yeah, normies who are not really fans of foreign movies, and after they they watch it, they're like, "That was really good. That that was a great movie." I don't watch a whole lot of movies like that. Um, the past few uh, years, when I've taught my international film class, I start the class with Parasite. Oh, really? And it goes over really well. And a lot of people think it's uh the best film that they watch in the semester, or certainly one of their favorites. Yeah, I mean, this it's it's a movie that just has an impact on most people who watch it. So. That's something I can really appreciate. Um, like, obviously, as big film people, we watch some movies that no one sees. And it's a lot of movies we see, maybe most people wouldn't actually really like or give a chance to. Like, they might like it, but it's it might be something that, you know, they don't want to see or they don't think they want to see. And I think that this, for it being not really an uplifting movie, um, not definitely not a happy movie. Um, but, but it's so entertaining. Very entertaining, very thrilling in the sort of Hitchcockian tradition that, that Bong Joon-ho and um, maybe another Korean filmmaker I'll mention later seem to have been very influenced by. And I think South Korea really is at the the cutting edge of, of adult thrillers um, in a way that we just don't see a lot of American movies that, that feel like this. Um, this I think was the first Bong Joon-ho movie I ever watched. I've since seen a few of his other ones. Memories of Murder is one I like a lot. Um, When I saw the film, I had been a fan of his for years. I saw The Host in the theater when it came out and pretty much every film he had done since then, including Tokyo, which he did at part of the anthology. Yeah, so uh, this was his big breakthrough movie, though. Right. Yeah. He's one of those directors that like is I mean, when Tarantino uh, uh, would he put his films on his list and Bong Joon-ho mentioned that when he won Best Director and he thanked Quentin for, you know, when people weren't familiar with his films, he put them on his favorite film lists. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's one of the most masterfully directed films of the last five years. It's just yes. so... Uh, you just, no no it's wasted so shots, no wasted action, anything like that. Um, yeah. It moves. It's like two hours or something like that. It's, it's like two, two hours and 12 15. minutes. Yeah. yeah. It moves at an incredible pace and there's no wasted seconds and some really incredible performances from uh, pretty much everyone across the board. Um, yeah. Parasite is if, if there's like a movie, you could be like, Oh, I want to watch a, a movie, not in English language. I, I'm not really familiar with foreign movies. This would be like one of the first ones you could probably recommend to someone and, and know that they're probably going to like it, or at least they won't like be disgusted by it or turn it off or something like that. Um, so yeah, Parasite, premiered same days once once upon a time i have such a hard time saying that i want to say it so fast um may 29th may 21st 2019 monumental day in cinema history um so i think your next one premiered right at the start of the pandemic right 
Yes. Well, it technically premiered in 2019, but it opened uh, in uh, on March 6, 2020. Oh, my God. Uh, bad timing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I got to see it at the New York Film Festival in fall of 2019. I'm talking about Kelly Reidark's First Cow, which is, I think, probably her best film. I've seen all of her films. I think she's the best woman working uh, the best woman director in the world and that puts her as one of the absolute best filmmakers period oh yeah i uh i just think she is she's what a lot of the films we're talking about a lot of the directors there's some directors when i see their new film I almost relax a little bit because you're in safe hands you just tell you can tell that every decision being made is just so you know they put so much thought into it and first cow is a period piece. I mean, she has done a few period pieces. Uh, kind of a precursor a little bit is uh, her film Meek's Cutoff. Uh, First Cow is kind of sort of a Western, but not really. Uh, you know, you could call it a Western of sorts, but it's basically about two men. One of them is a cook for some uh, um, trappers, and uh, another is an Asian man and they get together and they decide that they're going to go into business and they basically steal milk from a rich person's cow and they make these uh, pastries that go over like gangbusters. And that's basically the plot of the film. <laughs> and it's just a wonderful just film about American history and business and entrepreneurship and class and it's just an absolutely wonderful film i think it's without question one of the best films of the last five years i mean she is one of the great uh american filmmakers of recent years i mean she made one film in the 90s and then went like about 12 years plus before her next feature film but she's had a film about every three or four years in the last 15 years and boy is she just i feel just privileged every time she has a new film come out and first cow i just thought was wonderful so you should see it you've never seen any know, of her yeah. films yeah i haven't seen any of her movies uh do you think this would probably be a good one to start with or do you think it would you should start earlier Sure. Uh, I think this would be, uh, I mean, I would say Wendy and Lucy might be a really good one to start with her first film, uh, a long, very fruitful collaboration. One of four films she's done with Michelle Williams. Uh, first cow is one of the ones that doesn't have Michelle Williams. Um, but I would certainly say Wendy and Lucy, Wendy and Lucy or first cow. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you could just go and watch all of her films in order. I mean, she hasn't made a bad film. What do you think the is there any sort of auteur characteristic for movies? There are films very much about America. They're about they're usually set in Oregon mm -hmm. and they are about kind of living the American dream, but not being able to make it. I mean, Wendy and Lucy is about this woman who's basically, you know, at that time homeless and she's trying to get her life together trying to get to a new job and she has this dog she's trying to get her car fixed and so she's often making films that are about people trying to get to a new place on the in margins life. of society right and she did a film called uh certain women that has michelle williams also has laura dern and uh Kristen stewart 
and Lily Gladstone, who should have won Best Supporting Actress that year. I when people will be talking about her a lot this year for mm-hmm. Killers of the Flower Moon, she has an amazing. She's one of the best scenes of a person's face in movie history. Uh, of just like it's up there to me with like Falconetti Joan and, of Arc. and <laughs> Chaplin at the end of City Lights and Lily Tomlin in Nashville and Keith Carradine singing I'm Easy. Uh, uh, it's like one of the great, there's just like an extended shot of her driving and you're seeing her face. But anyway, uh, first cow, she's in it, a second film of right arcs that she's in. She has a small role in that one. But mm-hmm. first cow is just an absolutely wonderful, it's quiet. I mean, don't go into it like it's like we've said this before about some films like nomad land and past lives like oh my yeah. gosh it has like the best reviewed film of the year and then people go oh, but nothing really happens and it's yeah. quiet. i'm i'm telling you it's quiet it's subtle uh-huh. it's very understated but it's uh it's also it's funny her most recent film showing up is like her first film that's kind of a comedy uh-huh. um and first cow uh, compared to a lot of her previous films, has more humor in it. And a lot of her films are like very serious and mm-hmm. not necessarily like super heavy and bleak. Some of them are, but yeah. uh, but First Cow has quite a bit of humor in it. Um, you know, not like Apatow Hangover, he's <laughs> slapping funny. Not that there's a problem with that, but uh, uh-huh. First Cow is a very quiet, quietly funny and clever movie. And uh, it also, uh, like the souvenir part two has just a great, great ending. I think uh, we might have skipped one chronologically. I have mine you. in order. Okay. Surely a movie by uh, an Italian American. I know. Came out in 2019. Well, uh, so first Cal premiered August 30th, 2019 at the Telluride Film Festival. And then The Irishman oh, premiered okay. September 27th, 2019. <laughs> so The Irishman opened in the. I know the Irishman opened in the U.S. In theaters, first. yeah, yeah. So, um, Irishman uh, is on my list. Um, I don't know if it's on your official list. You certainly had it as a, in contention, definitely in contention. So, uh, Irishman is uh, Martin Scorsese's three-hour and twenty-nine-minute crime epic that mm-hmm. is very much in conversation with films like Mean Streets, Goodfellas, uh, Casino, but it's also, um. And it's a it's one of the great old man films. Also, it's movies like, like so, The Leopard and stuff like though of like a time that's disappearing, and the yes. culture that's disappearing. <laughs> I mean, it would be an extremely long double feature, but it really would be kind of an interesting one to watch in comparison with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's true, and they came out the same year. We're yeah. nominated in many of the same categories. So I was very lucky in that uh, I bought a ticket to this film at the New York Film Festival, where it was the opening film. And in Alice Tully Hall, it selects the seat for you. And I had a literal front row seat to the world premiere of the film, which was introduced in person by Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and other members of the cast and crew. And I sat there. I didn't have to get up to go to the bathroom. I was just enraptured for a minute less than three and a half hours. And I think that it's Scorsese's best film of the century. Mm-hmm. I think it's like, you know, right around like being in the top five, if not like six or seven. It's like way up there is one of the best films he's ever done. It's just, I mean, I don't know if I'll use this word, but it's, you know, maybe one of his masterpieces. It's one of his best movies. I think De Niro, who it's like, it's so depressing looking at his lineup of movies in the <laughs> last 20 years. Like the fact that he's done like nearly 40 movies 
and Machete is like the fourth highest rated one on Metacritic. Uh-huh. Uh, but this is like one of his best performances in 30 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pesci is amazing. Pesci's in it. so good in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I love Brad Pitt, but I would, I, I would have voted for Pesci that yeah. year for supporting actor. Um, and it's the Pacino quiet is sort of, yeah. There. I know it's in like uh, Raging Bull and Goodfellas. You know, he's so kind of explosive, and in this movie, he's so understated. Uh-huh. Uh And I and and I'll say about the Irishman, um, the first, I don't know exactly how long, but like the first two and a half hours in the movie are kind of more similar to you know things like goodfellas and casino not quite yeah. as, it's not as flashy it's not quite as loud and like bravado as those but it certainly is like masterfully done and use this sort I, of music to progress it along and stuff like that right but the last like 45 minutes hour of the irishman i thought was just amazing where it's, it really slows down yes. and you see de niro's character go and it's not really a spoiler alert because it happened in real life or maybe what uh-huh. really happened, but he goes and kill Hoffa. He goes to kill Hoffa Pacino's character. Uh, he plays Jimmy Hoffa and him like getting on the plane, riding yes. in the car and like, and then the, what happens uh, when he's in the retirement home, you know, it's, I just thought it was so moving and melancholy and just well, so pro- living with the weight of his actions for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's like you get disappointed with some of these great actors like De Niro and Pacino that their choices in the last 20 years, like, why are they doing Dirty Grandpa in 88 mm-hmm. Minutes and Jack and Jill? And but but De Niro is just like incredible. And so it's it's it, I, I'm so mad that he wasn't nominated for Best Actor and Joaquin yeah. Phoenix won for Joker. That yeah, year, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. There was the weird sort of controversy over the. Um, I don't even know if controversy is the right word. De-aging? Yeah, people being sort of taken out of the movie and some of the scenes where he's supposed to be someone younger. A lot of people had a real issue with that in a way that that I really didn't. Um, And, you know, I guess if you want to pick holes and stuff, you can do that. I don't think it's a very productive way to watch a movie. Um, But I thought he was great, (laughs) you know, showing the younger guy and uh, he's such a simple character, but his sort of simplicity is uh, kind of what makes him such an interesting character. Uh, and, yeah, the parts the like where he's talking to the priest at the end and stuff like that are just incredible. And he's and, so non-vocal and doesn't know how to express himself and struggles so much with expression. Um, and how and like and how some people criticize. Oh, Scorsese doesn't have great roles for women. But like Anna Paquin speaks like maybe twenty words in this nearly yeah. three and a half hour movie, and she's so good in it. And it speaks so loudly, even though she doesn't actually say very much verbally. Yeah. <laughs> she says so much in the movie. The, well, it's funny people use that as silence. like a criticism. Like she doesn't speak, and it's like, do you, does someone need to speak to be like a human being and and affect other people's lives and have an own sort of internal life like i mean scorsese is like i think maybe the number one living director with the most nominations for acting for, uh, from films he's directed and so that just by fault by default makes him like he is like one of the like more women have been nominated for acting in his films than just about any other living director yeah woody allen's yeah. number one actually <laughs> well, uh interesting won a few right like uh 1978 2013 yeah. yeah um so i think Cape we've we've done five so far 
I think we're trying to limit this to under an hour, so maybe we can be faster. We don't. The we don't want to have it episode. be as long as the Irishman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Once you checking, uh, going the last half hour and be like, I'm dealing with the weight of the decisions of my life. Um, so we will take a brief break and be back with uh the remaining five movies. I have three. You have two. Correct. Uh, yes. So stay tuned for the big reveal in part two. We are back to finish our respective top fives of the movie Brett's five year anniversary. Um, we're going to skip ahead slightly chronologically. Uh, we're going to jump over what Jonathan's next pick uh, and go to chronologically my next film, uh, which is another international feature uh, that made a bit of a splash in the United States with uh, Academy Award nominations and whatnot. Uh, it is also like uh, the Irishman and once once upon a time in Hollywood. I can't believe I have such a hard time saying that. Uh, quite long, uh, one minute under three hours. It is Drive My Car, directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. And we've said about a few movies: First Cow, um, uh, the Tarantino movie, also the Irishman. A meditative, maybe not the fastest pace of movies. This takes slow and meditative to a bit of an extreme that I think might be difficult for the average moviegoer to, to get on its wavelength, but the uh, fast and the furious, it is not. Yes. But this is a movie where very much you are rewarded. If you allow it the time to, to say what it wants to say over three hours and gets you on the, the sort of meditative level that uh, Hamaguchi wants his, his viewers to be in when they watch this movie. Um, this is a brilliant movie about communication and things being lost in translation and the sort of Tower of Babel world we live in as we're becoming more, um, you know, the world is getting smaller. Globalization is increasing, but in a lot of ways, we're still isolated and cut off from other people or from other cultures uh, or even from ourselves and our own feelings, maybe. Um, so this is one of the most human movies I've, I think I've ever seen. Um, it is about a theater director who directs a multilingual production of Uncle Vanya uh, in Hiroshima, Japan, I think, something like that. Um, but it is sort of about Uncle Vanya, but also more about the director and the actors in his production and in their lives and how they negotiate trauma and tragedy and personal loss and experiences that might not be easy to overcome. Um but uh, competed for the Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival. So uh, all three of mine so far have been uh, Cannes uh, premieres. Um, this one, I don't think I said, was July 11th. This was part of the Cannes Film Festival that, um, due to COVID, was sort of slightly pushed back. Um, I think this is the only movie I've seen by this director. He has another one coming out this year. Um, but this seems to be Ooh. very much Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Doesn't he have? Yeah, one he has two two films coming. Out. One just premiered at Venice called okay. "Evil Does Not Exist." That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, but yeah, um, I've never seen any of his movies uh, except this. He he had two films come out the year that movie came out too. Yes, um, but you know, I guess is a director. Maybe I should see more of his stuff because this one 
I really, really, really liked and um, watched at home on streaming on HBO Max or what is now Max. I wish I had seen this in a theater. I obviously still liked it and allowed myself to be taken in by it, but I think being in a theater would have really uh, made it even more unique and enriching of an experience as a moviegoer. Um, so this is one of those rare movies that um, I think really you know makes you feel like you have a better understanding of other people and a little bit about yourself and um, Drive My Car, one of my favorite movies of the last five years. Uh, you, I remember, saw this before I did um, and definitely told me not to look at my phone when I was watching it, which I think is pretty necessary for, especially when you watch a movie that's not in English, it sort of forces you to to really pay attention to it to interact with it and be an engaged viewer um which this movie really really rewards i can't sort of overstate how much this rewards being an engaged and active viewer which everyone should be but considering streaming and stuff like that i'm sure more often than not viewers are not as engaged and active as they should be but um drive my car great great movie jonathan thoughts on it yeah, it was in my top three of their top five, at least of uh, the year it came out, 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was won a bunch of critics awards and was nominated for best picture, best director, best adapted screenplay and won best international feature film. And uh, I just found I saw it in the theater. I found it totally engrossing. I mean, it's the type of movie if like if you're not just totally against the idea of watching a talky three-hour japanese subtitled movie it's just totally riveting and i mean there's scenes where like you're watching people driving for 25 minutes straight and talking in the car and it's just you're totally engaged and you're totally care about what's being said mm-hmm. and it, it's almost like there's parts of it that are like hypnotic where mm-hmm. you're just the the lull of uh long car drive and you're hearing the people talk and you're just like so you know, it's interesting how the car is almost like a little theater or like there's yeah. this little bit of, you know, there's an incredible on. scene of a conversation in the backseat of the car that maybe goes on for like five or six minutes. That was just like some of the most riveting filmmaking I've ever seen. It's just two people talking in the backseat of a car. Um, but that's it's just an achievement of the director and the story and the performances. Really, really excellent lead performance by Hidetoshi Nishijima. Um, who plays the actor director? Um, it's just great. It's just, it's just great. <laughs> uh, so we can we can move on to your next one, Jonathan. Uh, yes. Yeah, so my next one is uh, never, rarely, sometimes, always. It's a film written and directed by Eliza Hitman. It's her third feature film. It premiered uh, early in 2020, uh, January 24th at the Sundance Film Festival. And then even more so than First Cow, which that one opened theatrically in the U.S. March 6, 2020. Never rarely opened March 13th, 2020. So it oh basically God. was like, you know, it, it really got a bad, uh, you know, release time. Uh, but this movie is just so beautifully done it's about a teenage girl who finds out she's pregnant and she lives in pretty rural pennsylvania and in that state one cannot have an abortion if someone is under the age of 18 without parental consent so she and her uh, best friend who's also her uh, female cousin 
they get enough money together to take a bus to New York City and go to a Planned Parenthood and uh, plan to uh, get an abortion for her. Um, this may sound like a weird comparison, but it the movie kind of reminds me of Midnight Cowboy. They're both mm-hmm. films that are set in New York and are about these two people. Outsiders. Yeah, and and it has, and they're both you know connected to sex in some way, and um, it's just such a slice of life film. It feels so natural and real, but it's also beautiful and cinematic. It feels like a a tone poem. Uh, it, it manages to be like really gritty and uh, feels like you're on the bus, you're on the streets, you're in the clinic with these characters, but it also has this heightened um kind of ethereal ethereal may not be the right word but it feels almost like uh there's a poetry to it. poetic cinema malik-esque yeah and um not quite as floaty and uh (laughs) you know uh but yeah i mean and i don't want to give it away do you i'll ask you do you know what the title refers to uh it's i i assume a medical questionnaire of some sort right something like that yeah um, along with me saying that in uh, another Kelly Wright arc film, uh, I mentioned Certain Women, um, this movie uh, has an amazing scene of uh, a woman's face. It, there's a conversation that goes on between uh, a worker at Planned Parenthood and this young teenage girl. And at a certain point, it stays on the teenage main character for like three or four minutes. And it's just an amazing performance, especially considering that she had never acted before. Um, Eliza Hitman likes to use non-professional actors or non-actors. Um, her previous film uh, was called Beach Rats, and it starred, it's kind of the breakthrough role for this British actor uh, who was the star of Triangle of Sadness. Uh, I think his, his name was like Harris Dixon or something. Harris like Dickinson, that. yeah. Yeah, and, and um, her films are all three of Lisa Hitton's film are about young people dealing with their sexuality and personal, you know, issues. Uh, and I just thought Never Rarely was just such a beautiful, simple, but profound movie. And it's one that could, without it all being didactic, you can tell, you know, what her position is by making this work of art, but it really is a movie. I feel like if people watched it, it could change people's minds about abortion or at least make them more empathetic to mm-hmm. people in situations like that. So yeah, uh, a movie you have not seen, but I highly no, I recommend still haven't, it. Yeah. And unlike a lot of the last two you've been talking about, it's like 101 minutes long. So, And I think uh, it was streaming somewhere, at least it was the year it came out. Yeah, it's easily available on the various streaming services. So uh, I, I, I'm I eagerly awaiting her next movie. Uh, she's directed some television since the film came out, but I hope that um, we see some more films from her. Well, nice. Well, I will go to my next, which is also jumping ahead in time a little bit, and also premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, four for four here. Um, I'm just taking all my picks straight out of La Quazette, is that what they call it? Um, here in May 23rd, 2022, it is Park Chan Wook's decision to leave another Korean picture. So that's three 
uh, East Asian movies in my top five. Um, so, you know, movies can lean towards either being very formalist where you, you know, make use of cuts and, and edits and montage and music and very much uh, privilege the style of a movie or you can sort of make a realist movie. Uh, Decision leaves very much a formalist movie. And that's what I really, really like about it. It is like the most showy directed movie, I think, uh, without being over the top and like this is too much, uh, which makes it one of the more enjoyable, entertaining, suspenseful, dramatic uh, film watching experiences I've had in the last few years. Um, this is just a very, very exciting, entertaining, uh, colorful, really nice to look at, but also really well acted and has a massive gut punch of an ending uh, emotionally. It just takes you through the ringer of being shocked, surprised, wanting something to happen, wanting something not to happen. Um, that I think this is another uh, international movie I think would be accessible to a lot of people because it's in the sort of vein of a Hitchcock uh, sort of romantic mystery thriller noir um, that, uh, like I said, I think Koreans are doing very well recently. Um, so, yeah, this is... One of my, I wouldn't call it like a guilty pleasure because it's not like this is like a trash movie or anything like that, but um, a movie I've watched multiple, multiple times. And anytime I'm thinking like, maybe what should I watch? I was like, oh, I should probably watch Decision to Leave. <laughs> so although this came out, I think I saw it for the first time, really, less than a year ago. I've seen it four or five times since since it came out. Um, so Decision to Leave. And I'm, I, Park Chan-wook is a, a director who's been, uh, working in the sort of thriller uh, genre for some time. Old Boy, which just had his 20th anniversary, was re-released in theaters. Um, I think was the first movie of his that I saw. Um, I'm also a big fan of The Handmaiden, which came out in 2016. And the TV series he did in 2018, The Little Drummer Girl, uh, the John Lacar act adaptation, is one of my favorite TV miniseries of all time. And of his movies, I think this one actually might be my favorite, um, which is saying a lot because he's sort of a a new Hitchcock. If someone were to have that sort of title, he, he'd definitely be one of the people who'd be uh, up for taking that mantle. And in a lot of ways, it's just as perverted, but because he works in the 21st century, not the 20th, he's allowed to depict certain things that Hitchcock could only dream of depicting. So there's a lot more bite to, to his movies, uh, I think you could say, than Hitchcock, even though the influence is very obvious. Um, it's in the best tradition of, you know, the De Palmas and, and people like that, the new Hitchcocks, I think. Um, Park Chan-wook is probably my favorite of those. And Decision to Leave, I think, is my favorite movie by him. Um, you have definitely seen a number of his movies, right, Jonathan? Um, yes. How, how would saw... you evaluate this in the, in terms of his, uh, his oeuvre? Well, I would say that um, if people were kind of disturbed and horrified even pleasantly so uh uh by old boy this film isn't at nearly no. as graphic or as no. controversial as that yeah but um it's uh and it's more romantic yes, than old boy. Yeah. <laughs> um the romance, the romance in old boy makes you squirm a bit <laughs> yeah um but yeah i think that this decision to leave was in my top 10 of last year i saw it at the new york film festival with uh park in person um and seeing it on the big screen and one thing that makes me sad during you know quite a bit of this period we're talking about is the pandemic there's all these films that 
just so deserved to be seen on a big screen with an audience and decision to leave is one of the more visually lush and technically proficient films in recent years and i think that uh you know we said we're very happy that there's companies like movie that are promoting and putting out distributing films like this but um like decision to leave didn't get like a huge theatrical release like no. it, it didn't play in a lot of cities. i didn't get um, to see it in theaters yeah i had to watch it i got movie to watch this movie basically yeah and in uh interestingly comparing it uh, to uh, our previous episode where we talked about talk to me uh it's uh one of the best films to deal with screens and cell phones in recent yeah. years yes um <laughs> and uh it's just it's a movie that is flashy when it needs to be but also there's really interesting technical things where uh it doesn't necessarily seem like anything that special or wowing mm-hmm. is happening but like there's a scene where there's an interrogation room and like what's in focus and what's out of focus is like really technically difficult and mm-hmm. it's just kind of done with such simplicity and yeah it's and uh it, it also compared to um some films we've talked about uh in this episode in the past one surprisingly funny yeah got, got a oh, lot yeah. of laughs in the theater not a comedy really but it's uh it, it's funnier than you would think yes i mean it's just it's flashy in the best kind of way. Um, yes. And I think not a whole lot more needs to be said, but if you haven't seen this, I think, I think a lot of people would enjoy this. If, if you don't look at your phone and because it's subtitles, if you do look at your phone, you're going to miss a hell of a lot. So um, yes. I would recommend this. I, I think it's movie. It's available. I'm pretty sure it's available to rent anywhere. I have it on Blu-ray, a movie home release. Um, I don't expect everyone to go out and buy it, but decision to leave. Uh, came out last year already one of my top five favorites um so we'll go back in time for jonathan this next one <laughs> yes uh one of my five favorites and the last on my list is one that's also one of carter's favorites is uh the father uh florian zeller's uh directorial debut premiered at sundance january 27th 2020 and uh was released over a year later Technically, it was that weird Oscars where they allowed films that open theatrically a few months into the next year to qualify for awards. Opened in February 26, 2021. Uh, this is based on a stage play. Stars Anthony Hopkins, who won his second Oscar. And I'll just say it. I mean, to me, this is one of the great film performances of all time. This is, like, I think, the best film performance of this century. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is just a masterclass in acting and uh it's just so i mean everything about the movie the production design the editing the script the acting the directing everything is just at the highest level it is a i mean it's one of the best i mean i have not seen it on stage but it's one of the best films i've ever seen based on a play and mm-hmm. it seems like it's one of the greatest so cinematic. transitions yeah, yeah. And because it's about a man who an older gentleman who has Alzheimer's dementia, something along that line. And the film really puts you in the headspace of someone suffering with that and the confusion and the uncertainty of your own apartment. Yeah. Your loved ones, people come in and it's different actors or the set is slightly changed. The arrangement of the furniture time 
becomes elusive and slips away when and, and false certainty and stuff like that something he's sure about is, is something that isn't true and stuff like that yeah it's it's heartbreaking and it's so sad but it's not like it's not like depression porn like it's a movie yeah. that feels so achingly deeply human that it makes you feel better watching it even though it's heavy because it makes you understand part of the human condition something that so many people deal with yeah. or almost everyone will have a loved one someone at least fairly close to them a very good friend deal with so- something like this and uh it kind of is a film that is in similar vein to something like michael hanukkah's amour uh-huh. and uh which is not in the last five years but uh uh you know it was i think one of the absolute best films of this century and the father is just a incredible film and you know, really impressive for a directorial debut. Super mm-hmm. impressive. And but uh, Anthony uh, Hopkins is the thing to say. I mean, it's yes. just uh incredible Olivia Coleman's great and a lot of good supporting performances, but Anthony Hopkins is just like it, it's absolutely heartbreaking performance. But yeah. Well it's, it's hard great. to uh, even believe how good he is. <laughs> that was the movie I very much remember walking out of it and being like, that's one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> like no doubt about it and um, it's this is random but it's also one of the shortest best picture nominees in the last five years because it's like 96 minutes yes or something it's like very compact it knows what it's doing um it it makes great use of cinema's ability to put you in the shoes of another person to, to see the world view of another person or how a you know they experience reality and i don't know if i've ever seen a movie that sort of puts you in another person's shoes better than this and uses Ebert. Yeah. Ebert once called a cinema the great empathy machine. Yes. And this is just like, wow. Like, I really felt like I've, I've understood what, you know, someone who is dealing with memory issues, like severe memory issues, what, how they would experience the world, and how confusing it would be and how angry it would make you and uh, how when you sort of return to clarity, how devastating it would be. Um, it's incredible. One of the great sort of final acts of a movie uh or i don't know if it's an act but five or ten minutes um and it does an incredible thing to sort of replicate uh alzheimer's or dementia where different actors play the same person um so you can't even necessarily be sure about who's doing what or if this person was ever really there uh and it never feels like a gimmick ever it feels so honest yeah and the set the way the sets change and all this sort of stuff and uh, it's it's hard uh, this is a movie i'd recommend to pretty much most people um if they really want to see like a devastating but also beautiful and like incredibly and powerful movie and it's almost weirdly like a thriller because it's so gripping because yes. it's like what's going to happen what's actually happening there, yeah it, but it's never feels gimmicky like i said though and olivia coleman is you know she's been on an incredible hot streak the last five or six years and uh incredible supporting performance and so much pathos and, and sympathy and you feel so bad for this person who has sacrificed so much for someone who doesn't even know they're you know they're helping them it's it's very sad but also it's great uh, i think so this, that this uh, would have been in my top five but i didn't want to overlap too much with jonathan i allowed him to pick this one i was just going to say that if you were teaching if you're teaching a film class and you wanted to illustrate basically any 
area of filmmaking, this would be yeah. a great example. Production design, editing, performance, directing, adaption, just screenplays in general. I mean, like yeah. every level, every aspect of this film is just so good. So massively, good. yeah, massively, yeah. technically proficient. Uh, very, very human. Uh, and I think pretty digestible. It's pretty short. Everyone is aware of this issue and, and can relate to it. I think, like you said, most people have you know met someone or know someone or have a loved one who's been affected by memory loss uh so i i think it's like a universal human tale at this point and i don't think any movie has dealt with it better um it's one of those subject movies that really nails it um and i have not seen the follow-up the fa fo- or it's not a follow-up but the the next movie florian zeller has made the sun but i saw it didn't get nearly as good of reviews as this no. one, was yeah, i saw it yeah, it's it, it it's very well acted, but it is gimmicky and like gross in a way in some of its dramatic turns, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it feels whereas the father feels like very honest, and the son feels like scripted and dramatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's I, I don't think it's a terrible film, but it's big big disappointment. Yeah, well, because yeah, it's hard to come with a debut better than that. Um, so our final of the 10, uh, the most recent release, uh, came out September 1st, 2022 in Venice was released in the U S October 7th, uh, one word tar, uh, directed by Todd field, written and directed by Todd field, uh, starring Kate Blanchett. And what I think is up there with Anthony Hopkins in the father is one of the great film performances of this century. Um, Written, predict- directed, written, and produced by Todd Field. Uh, his first movie in, what was it, 19 years, 18 years, something like that. Um, and apparently will be his last movie, at least if he's to be believed about that, uh, which is a real loss for uh, the world in general and humans specifically. Um, but for me, this is the ultimate cancel culture movie um, where it it seems like it has a position on it that it totally seems to change its attitude or or maybe that's the audience member who's seeing things and, and reacting as an audience member and the movie's taking you in different ways and showing you different things and recontextualizing moments you've seen before. Um, but one of the great movies that is uh, like Oppenheimer that came out this, this summer, a very subjective movie, which is really focused in on the main character and the main character's uh, experience of the world and their worldview. So uh, some, bombs or mines end up exploding later in the movie that are are sort of set for you at the beginning because like the main character you don't necessarily notice that this is something that um other people might have an issue with or um is something that they're doing that it might be wrong um but makes the world of classical symphonies and conducting it as exciting as a, a battle or uh like a massive final sporting event or something like that um, also, very good international cast, uh, Naomi Merlon, who a lot of people would know from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Nina Haas, who's been uh, one of the great German actors of this century. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to Kate Blanchett and Todd Field, and this is one of the great achievements of director and actor um, up there with you know Raging Bull or The Godfather or something like that. Um, long movie, not for everybody. Uh, the first time I saw this, I thought that they had maybe done something wrong playing it because it sort of starts off with the ending credits, but in reverse, 
played over like this very strange South American indigenous music. Um, but this is a great example of a movie that's almost magical realist in that some things happen in it that aren't necessarily explained in some things you see. Uh, you start to doubt whether or not they really happened or what we saw is the version of the thing that happened um, in a way that it's ambiguity. I found very, very exciting and quite different than how most modern audiences like to have their movies almost spoon fed to them. And you very much want to know who's doing something wrong and who's doing something right and how we should feel about it at the end of the movie. And this movie just ask questions but doesn't answer any of them really uh in a way that i thought was very exciting and really pushed sort of boundaries for an american movie it very much felt more like a like a 70s european movie than a movie released in the united states in 2022 but also is very much about uh the moment we're living in and uh the changing politics of of power and and stuff like that and who deserves to tell stories and who doesn't and all kinds of incredible issues but never really answers any of those just makes anyone who sees it have to ask questions about you know the role of art and artists and how much some people can get away with and whether some things do deserve someone's whole career to be ended based on them and um one definitely one of my best movies of uh the last five years uh jonathan thoughts on tar this is actually the only Todd Field movie I've ever seen. I haven't seen his other two. I have seen his first film in the bedroom. Uh, and Oh, I have seen uh, Little Children. He did Little Children, right? Yeah, that's the one I haven't seen. Yeah. Yeah. Great Jackie and, Earl Haley in that one. Yeah, I, yeah, Tar was in my top five of the last year. I thought it was completely brilliantly directed. Uh, I thought it was... In a weird way, we were reviewing Passages last episode, kind of a stealth dark comedy in some ways, also yeah. kind of a psychological horror film. Yes. Um, and I mean, not that it's the whole show, but I mean, Kate Blanchett, I mean, Kate Blanchett should have won Best Actress. Yes. It yes. was, um, yeah, just a masterclass performance. You know, she's one of the greatest actresses living. And this maybe be this might be the best performance she's ever given um for me this is yeah like her defining role of her career that's not one she won an oscar for yeah i um yeah so huge fan of, yeah and it's funny how we were both so gaga for it and other people are like it's so inaccessible and it's so <laughs> long and it's about classical music but it's like i don't know i just found it really compelling yeah it starts off with like a 20 minute interview that you're just like wow this is gripping <laughs> it's like an npr interview um yeah and it it really operates for a movie that operates so much in extended takes and, you know, continuous settings, it also is in a very, very subjective movie. Um, so that sort of tension between realist technique and uh, sort of formalist technique and um, ambiguity in its plot and its story, I thought was made a really interesting tension. Um, this is definitely not like a pleasant movie to watch. <laughs> Uh, but it is gripping, and uh, at least if you allow yourself to be uh, sort of taken by it. A lot of, I guess I had three pretty long movies on here. Um, Drive My Car, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Tar. And then you had uh, a pretty long one, too, with uh, The Irishman. So, But then there's a couple short ones thrown in there. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I think 
I don't know. What is, does that say anything about the last five years? You think that that so many of these movies have been two thirty plus? Maybe that's just reaching. Well, not that long. Two hundred and thirty <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Over uh, over uh, one hundred and seventy nine minutes or longer. But yeah, I mean, I uh, I know the pandemic is like such a big asterisk like thing to like in any film conversation in the last three. Yeah. and a half years it's like there's the pandemic um i mean all of my movies are like really small movies except the yeah, irishman true. but even that is like a movie that a lot of people didn't see probably because it's three and a half hours long um i mean like oh, film people did i think yeah. and academy voters even though it went 10 for zero it i think and it didn't win and didn't win any oscars um but yeah i i mean it's like every year there's great films and also every year there's disappointing films and every year there's bad movies and every year, you know, years are better than others, but there's always a great crop of movies yeah. each year. It's hard to, you know, say like, what's the best year of the past five years? You know, it, it's, well, it's, I so think hard it's to... probably 2019. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, but in a weird way, it's like, you know, it, it, it's like 2020 was such a, in 2021 also kind of because the pandemic it's like there was this there were pushback uh, there, releases and stuff I, I know and there's things like you know when does something count you know because it's like i mean i think that i would probably say the fa- the uh the father is my favorite film of this decade so far but mm-hmm. like first cow is in was my favorite film of 2020 but it technically came out in 2019 i know it's like a you know th- festival release in 2019 a theatrical release in 2020 well were the there act- any that were just missed the cut for you i was looking at my list of like my 10 favorite films last few years banshees of Inish sharon was my favorite film of last year really yeah. really thought that was incredibly well done uh on every level writing acting directing um let's see i really liked i was talking about all these horror films i really liked i mean i'm not saying it's like top 10 best films the last five years but i really liked uh brandon cronenberg's film possessor i really liked this oh. thai horror film the sadness yeah um i really liked uh you know there there's just like i feel like there's like 10 horror films that were really really good that are all kind of like tied for like you know horror films of the last five years yeah um i really liked um i don't know it's it's, it's RRR was one of the more entertaining, yeah. <laughs> crazy films. Um, oh, one I want to throw out that is kind of a technicality because it's a TV miniseries, but it's like, what's what these days? Nobody saw this, like, hardly. Talking about Copenhagen Carboy? <laughs> no, no, his previous one, Too Old to Die Young. Okay. Which is just this glacially paced, extremely nihilistic and graphic and ugly and just no nobody wants nobody will like it except starring like, top guns miles teller right yeah it's i mean i adored it if it was counted as a film it would have been my second favorite film in 2019 after the irishman um i feel like there's seven people on earth that watched all 13 hours of it I bet. it's 10 episodes it's on amazon prime i mean it is like hardcore auteur television miniseries film whatever makes it twin is. peaks the return look very accessible <laughs> oh yeah i mean it, it it's it certainly makes it look like you know uh a fast-paced thing because i mean it, it's insanely network slow. I mean, tv show <laughs> twin yeah peaks the return. 
<laughs> so too, uh, too old to die young, I adored uh, so much. Uh, were there any ones you feel like no one else saw, but you were a really big fan of? Because uh, a lot of the ones you mentioned, people saw like Tar and Yeah, there aren't a lot that I feel like no one would have seen. I mean, I think there's some I liked more than the critics' consensus seemed to be. Like, even if it was well-reviewed, like Women Talking, I thought was, you know, blew me away when I saw it. Uh, the Fablemans, everyone saw that, but I thought it was great. Uh, the Velvet Underground, the Todd Haynes documentary that came out in 2021, very much one of my favorites of the last five years. I don't know if that was widely seen, but I think that's by far the best music documentary I've ever seen and really pushed sort of technical boundaries of what you can do in a music documentary and, and storytelling devices. And I definitely liked Joel Cohen's Tragedy of Beth, I think more than anyone else in the world. Uh, so that was pretty close to, to joining my top five, but then again, not like that was an underseen movie or anything like that. Um, uh, let's see anything else. Um, I, I mean, really Apollo liked... 11, I don't, I, people saw that, but I thought that was unbelievable. Um, Documentary. Yeah. Also the beach bum, I think is the funniest movie to come out in the last five years. I was about to say the beach, you know, Harmony Crin just had a film that had massive lockouts reportedly hit. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, the beach bum is one of his, probably his most accessible film. He made a stoner comedy. Uh-huh. Um, rest in peace, Jimmy Buffett, who uh, appeared in it as himself. It's true. Um, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, there's been some really good films last. I mean, there's ones I'm like, oh, but that came out just before you mm-hmm. know like it maybe theatrically came out i'll just mention that uh this doesn't count because it premiered in may <laughs> at the Cannes film festival but um cheng dong lee another south korean his film burning i thought was mm-hmm. really wonderful it got a theatrical release at the very end of 2018 but that doesn't count technically yeah i mean like you said the the covid19 pandemic definitely impacted a lot of release dates and productions and stuff like that that this seems to be the first year, especially this summer at the box office, that felt like a uh, sort of return to to normally, uh, you know, status quo antebellum, that sort of thing. I don't know what's pandemic, I guess status quo anti-pandemic is what you'd say. I don't know if pandemic is Latin, um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, those were our top 10 or if you want to count it as the movie rats top 10 of the last five years. Uh, technically, I think 11, yes, say that. technically 11, yeah. Technically 11, yeah um catch so yeah. up with any you haven't seen catch up yeah and we have a uh, listen to any of the 86 episodes in our back catalog over the last five years if you want to hear some movie reviews or top fives we haven't this is our first top five i feel like in some time so um i think we're gonna have a lot of movies coming out in the next few months to, to occupy uh our our list of movies to see and to talk about so uh thank you for listening however many episodes you might have listened to in the last five years Uh, And we will be back with you guys next time.